0: Hello, my name is Van Sneed, and welcome to another episode of The PS Plus, a Living Faith Bible Institute podcast that serves as a companion to another called The Postscript. Now, on that podcast, pastor and host Brandon Briscoe each week will speak with other pastors and professors from The Living Faith Bible Institute on a wide array of topics. Here on this podcast, The PS Plus, we'll take a look at some of those topics that are being discussed, and we'll dive in just a bit deeper on our last episode we took an introductory look at methods of bible translation and that's exactly where we're going to continue today so let's do this thing so as is customary for each episode of the ps plus let's go ahead and take just a few moments to review where we were at in our last episode for continuity's sake There were two primary translation methods that we took a look at, formal equivalence and dynamic equivalence. The former is known as a word-for-word translation, and that's where we're trying to find an appropriate word in the receptor language, the language that we're translating to, that is synonymous with the source language, the language that we're translating from. Now, the latter, in contrast to this, is known as dynamic equivalence, which is also a thought-for-thought translation. This type of translation method focuses more on the meaning, the message that is being conveyed, rather than the form, the letters, the sentence structure, or the style of grammar. Now, as it relates to dynamic equivalence, we took a look at its genesis coming from a man named Eugene Nida. And Nida was an individual who was looking to translate the Bible to languages for unreached people groups. However, what we saw is that even though Nida's original intent was to go from the original Hebrew or Greek into a language of an unreached people group, it would have side effects, if you will, on English translations of the Bible. And as we took an overview of how Nida's particular method worked, we saw that it's kind of a deviation to what we would expect. And one of the things that we saw is that it focuses on the reception of the audience. And we took a look at how it is that NIDA viewed whether a translation was successful or not. And one of the quotes from him in particular that we'll go ahead and read now is this. Regardless of how theoretically good a product might be or how seemingly well it is displayed if people do not respond favorably to it, then it is not going to be accepted. And so we saw in our last episode a major component of NIDA's translation philosophy was keeping the audience for which you are translating in mind during the translation process. And at the end of our last episode, I told you guys that I had some grievances with this particular methodology, and we're going to go through them today. We're going to talk about some of the problems with dynamic equivalence. Now, the first is going to sound familiar to some other issues that we've talked about in this series, which is that Nida's view is in alignment with what we've dubbed a critical view of Scripture. Now, this, again, is in contrast to a faith-based view of Scripture, and this has to do with the nature of preservation. Has God preserved his word as a supernatural act by which he himself will make sure that his word for all generations is Is preserved and without corruption? Or is it our job as believers in Christ, as textual critics, as as learned men and women, to go back through to try and find the earliest and the best manuscripts in order to recover the words that God has given us? And we find that Nida's view is like so many textual critics' view in that we don't have a received word. Rather, we are in the process of recovering the word. In an article by the Washington Post shortly after Eugene Nida's death, there's a quote from Nida that says this, There is no such thing as a definitive translation since there are constant advances in biblical scholarship as well as changes in all living languages. No major translation should last more than 50 years. And this, again, sounds familiar to the textual critics that we've seen before, where the Bible must constantly look to be retranslated because there are advances in biblical scholarship, meaning that we, as textual critics, if you're taking this view, we're smarter, we're faster, we're better than we were before, we have more resources than we did before, and so we must look critically at the older translations that didn't have older and better manuscripts and redo or retranslate or shore up the problems that we see with those older translations to a new and better text. And within a generation or two, we should repeat that process so we're always getting the very best of the very best. And this is in direct contrast with a faith-based view that says that God actually did that work for us. We need not do it. A second issue that we can find with Eugene Nida's translation philosophy, and by extension, some of the philosophies of some modern translations of the Bible, is the translator as the interpreter. Now, in a faith-based view, interpretation is downstream from translation. And here's what I mean by that. If the idea behind translation is to render the words in the source language as closely as possible in the receptor language... And the understanding is that those specific words, they mean things, meaning they carry a meaning that is bound up in the words themselves. Then it really isn't our place to try and interpret the meaning for the audience, but rather simply to present the words that were received so that the audience can interpret them according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 through the power of the Holy Spirit by comparing scripture with scripture. However, In Nida's approach, interpretation is a part of the translation process. Again, Eugene Nida says this, Since no two languages are identical, either in the meanings given to corresponding symbols or in the ways in which such symbols are arranged in phrases and sentences, it stands to reason that there can be no absolute correspondence between languages. Hence, there can be no fully exact translations, The total impact of a translation may be reasonably close to the original, but there can be no identity in detail. One must not imagine that the process of translation can avoid a certain degree of interpretation by the translator. He goes on to say, a translation remains perhaps the most direct form of commentary. Now, I think you can see, hopefully, why I personally find this problematic. Now, let me... Let me be perfectly transparent. I know English, like that's it. That's my only language. And Eugene Nida knows several languages. Lots of you out there know several languages. And we know that there is a degree of difficulty when going from one language to another language. However, this particular ideology makes sense in my head, perfect sense in my head. If we're talking about any other book, but the Bible. But the Bible is a supernatural, it's a spiritual book. And so this is a very pragmatic explanation for why we need to interpret as a part of the translation process. But I think it departs from a view that says, God, by faith, will preserve his word. And it's not just adherence to a KJV-only perspective that hold this view. This view is also held by translators of the English Standard Version, the ESV Bible. In fact, Dr. Gordon Winham of Trinity Bible College in Bristol, who was one of the translators of the ESV, has this to say about translation and interpretation. The job of the interpreter is different than the job of the translator. The translator is trying to get you into the world of the Bible, The job of the commentator and preacher is to explain to our culture what the relevance and meaning of the text is. And what's essentially being said here is, it's not the job of the individuals translating the Bible to, in that translation process, divine the meaning and then give it to you. But rather, God is perfectly capable of communicating in such a way Where the recipients can understand the meaning if we simply give the words that God Himself has provided. The third major red flag, at least in my book, as far as Nida's translation philosophy, is an opposition to biblical literalism. Now, we've talked about this in the past when we we went through our dispensational series. And one of the markers of a dispensational view of Scripture is believing that we interpret the Bible literally until the Bible itself tells us not to. Now, I want you to think about if it's not the words individually that we're, that we're translating, but rather the meaning, and in that process, if that also means that we can interpret as we're translating, then it's no wonder that it would be easy to depart from a more literal approach to translating scripture. And that's exactly what author Boone Aldridge says in his book, For the Gospel's Sake, which we talked about in our last episode. Listen to what it says here. Nida's approach was also at odds with literal biblicism. In 1947, he wrote, quote, words are merely vehicles for ideas. They are symbols, and as such, they usually have no special significance over and above the actual object's which they symbolize. Now, an example of this is when Eugene Nida was looking at translating the Bible for the Inuit people, which which took several decades to do. The language is just so different, but also in his approach, he's looking at making sure that the audience is prioritized over the individual words. Now, to that effect, the geography of the Bible, of first-century Jerusalem, is very different than the geography of, at the time, present-day Inuit people. For example, a palm tree would be present in Jerusalem in the first century, but wouldn't be present in the Arctic. And so, in Nida's translation philosophy, well, you can just swap the trees, or swap other things. Under that philosophy, if the people that you're translating for haven't heard of a lamb, for instance, because it's not native to that particular geography, well, then just swap that for an animal that they would understand. And we don't have to take this thinking far to see the problems. Is it possible that the flora or fauna or animals of the Bible don't exist in another place to which you are translating the Bible for? Absolutely, but. God, in his providence, chose to have the events recorded in the Bible take place in actual historical locations for a specific purpose. Is it our job to then say, you know what, God, I got it from here. Let me help you by changing what it is that you said, how it is that you said it, and where it is that the events happened so that it's relevant to the people that we're translating for. Absolutely not. Of course not we should remain faithful to what the Bible says rather than change it so that in our perception, the audience will better understand what God is trying to communicate. If you have questions about the Living Faith Bible Institute, I'd encourage you to visit lfbi.org where you can find out more about our mission and how it is that we're trying to equip the believers in Jesus Christ for the mission that God has for all of us. I hope this episode was helpful and I hope to talk to you next time. Take care.